The Spirit of God is moving upon His people and He is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. Hello, brothers and sisters. This is the Remnant Warrior, and you are now listening to Buy Their Fruits on the Kingdom Productions Network. By their fruits, you shall know them. By, 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 by their fruits. Welcome to By Their Fruits. This is Jeremy Stone. I am your host. I'm with my co-host, John. How you doing, John? Doing well, Jeremy. Hope everybody out there had a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you did as well. Hope you were uh, spending time with your family and friends and edifying this Lord and giving thanks uh, to uh, the Lord God for uh, everything that we have, both our uh, blessings and our trials and tribulations. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Absolutely, dude. Yeah, it's been a great couple of weeks, honestly. And, you know, I can't I complain a lot sometimes. It's kind of a bad habit of mine, but I'm blessed to have the roof over my head, man. I'm, I'm blessed to have a box fan, bro. <laughs> if I didn't have that thing, I wouldn't be able to sleep. But uh, so can you introduce your friend for us today? Yeah, today we have Eric on. I interviewed him uh, for my channel. We read the documents a little while ago with a, a fellow brother in, the, brother in Christ, Rich uh, Frieda Captives. Hopefully we're going to interview Rich uh sometime soon um i've known eric for years he's a personal friend of mine he's a fellow brother in christ he could actually attest to uh when i used to be a gnostic uh um eric uh used to try to <laughs> preach the gospel to me and show me the error of my illogical subjective reason uh, attaboy uh subjective uh you know reasoning and, and beliefs and uh too much of his frustration and he was very long-suffering uh, to put up with a lot of my nonsense. <laughs> and so is that true, Eric? Uh, we've, uh, my logic was very poor back in those days. It was, John. I'm sorry to say, but uh, I'm, uh, I love arguing. I love hearing myself talk, so uh, it's all good. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I love you, John. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to see you where you are. Yes, me, me as well. So, um, Eric, can you uh, briefly uh, go over your testimony of how you uh, came to God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Oh, absolutely. So um, I guess it's a little different that I guess unlike most people in the United States, I grew up knowing not that much about Christianity. Um, my parents were Christians, but, you know, we didn't go to church. We didn't really talk about it much. I remember my mom took me to um, vacation Bible school a few summers when I was in elementary school, early elementary school. And, you know, I listened to what they had to say, and it was it didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. Like I wasn't sure if I believed it was true. I believed God existed at the time. When I got to middle school, I started reading Carl Sagan. I love science. I still love science. And I was pretty close to being an atheist. Um, you know, I technically agnostic. I was really drawn in by transhumanism 
and the idea that technology can solve all of our problems. You know, I was I was a Trekkie, so <laughs> you know we all kind of get that from there a little bit, I guess. If you're a but fan. you had that Gene Roddenberry uh, uh, World Future Vis- Society, like that, Carl Sagan brainwashing. So <laughs> yes, yes, that that vision of the future, which I now completely reject. I think humans are far too imperfect to ever tear anything like that off. But that's where I was. Um, <clears throat> when I got around 15 or 16, I just started thinking about morality, and I realized that, you know, I'd never heard anyone give the moral argument for the existence of God, but just on my own thinking, or maybe I did, and I don't remember it, I don't know, but I thought to myself, if God doesn't exist, there's really no such thing as right or wrong, it's just, you know, all what we prefer or don't prefer, and I kind of went into moral nihilism, and, you know, I had some very strange views, I was a fan of eugenics, we should kill, you know, the weaker members of the human race so that or not kill them at least not let them reproduce so that you know the future generations could be better and i you know i've done a complete 180 from that one very very similar to david wood except he didn't try to uh murder no i never i never i never murdered anyone thank thank but but your thinking was along the same lines yeah i never tried to murder. he did actually murder his dad he tried to but yeah i've watched his testimony uh several times and it's very close to home and, you know, I didn't go as far as him. I never ended up in a psychological hospital. Um, I also don't have a, a Ph.D. like him either. So, <laughs> But um, when I was 16, I had uh, friends in high school inviting me to church. And I was interested. And, you know, I'll go see what this is all about. And I went. And I was lucky at the time that the pastor of the local church I went to always preached seeming like he knew there were unbelievers in the audience. He didn't expect you to just take his word for it when he spoke. Um, 11th grade, I started, you know, this was a few months later. I, I wasn't a Christian yet, I don't think. But in a chemistry class, the uh, teacher, just off the cuff, she wasn't even trying to make a point about anything as far as I know. She just mentioned that not all scientists agreed with evolutionary theory. And where I was is I didn't know it was possible to be a thinking person and not accept evolution. I saw the whole world through the lens of evolution. I would look at some animal and think to myself, I wonder what forces of mutation and natural selection cause that animal to be the way it is. So 16-year-old me, you know, I don't know that much about biology. I get online and I just start reading what creationists wrote. And there was enough there at the time that I was convinced that, yeah, hey, there is some logic to this. Evolution isn't as powerful as what I think it is. I read uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. I realized that, you Excellent know... Excellent book. Excellent book, by yeah, the way. I, I, I like it. <clears throat> There's a few others that I like even more now, but it, I mean, at the time, it was probably the best book on the topic. <clears throat> I haven't read all the books, but, you know, of the ones that I've seen, is pretty good. And I was like, well, hey, if... God created life on earth. I can't reject the Bible just because it contains miracles. And in the Bible, I'm seeing all these patterns that seem consistent with what we expect real history to look like and, you know, not consistent with legend or people just sitting around making things up. And I I became a Christian. I don't even remember if I finished reading the book before I became a Christian. I don't remember the order, but it was enough for me. So fast forward 10 years. I'm a software developer. I hang out in discussion forums online a lot. Most of the people in the software development community are not Christians. I went to Reddit, which I, at the time, I thought it was full of smart people. Now I realize it's a burning dumpster fire. It's a tough place uh, to be. Yeah. 
So, you know, I saw all these people that at the time I thought were very intelligent who accepted evolution, and they were posting a lot of arguments for evolution that I didn't even know existed. And I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to be able to address all of this. I need the majority of evidence to be to point to what I believe, or I need to believe wherever the majority of evidence points. You know, I the churches I went to at the time weren't a lot of help because very few people. I mean, I live in rural a rural part of the United States, and not a lot of people in the churches here are acquainted with you know the latest science. Let's just say that. So. I just, uh, you know, I started reading other stuff. Um, I read some of Michael Behe. Um, now, he, Behe is in the intelligent design movement. So he believes the Earth is old. He believes that all life evolved from a common ancestor. But at the same time, he doesn't think evolution is enough to get us here. And, you know, I don't take those views. I'm a young Earth creationist. But there was enough there, especially a second book, Edge of Evolution, showed me that it takes a huge numbers of microbes playing the evolution lottery, getting new mutations before the mutations even help out a little bit. And, you know, there was enough there. I I just started reading not even so much the intelligent design movement. I read, you know, some of their books. But, you know, I would just go straight to the sources, the biology journals, the evolutionary biology journals, population genetics. Um, and because I was very skeptical at the time, and i like everyone's saying opposite things. I just need to go as close as I can to the original research. And just from reading those papers published in biology journals alone, I, as strange as it is, it really strengthened my faith. Um, at the time, I was an old earth creationist because I was just so used to accepting, well, this is what I've, all the smart people believe, so I'm going to believe it too. And only in recent years have I started studying you know, the age of the earth a little more and I'm not as strong in debating that topic, but there's enough there. Could you briefly describe the difference real quick, Eric, if you don't mind, between oh, yeah. Earth creationism and young Earth creationism? Yeah, sorry. I forget. Uh, I need to explain this stuff. So <clears throat> in old Earth, let's just start with the atheistic view. You know, the universe would have been created about 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, gravity would have pulled to dust floating in space into the solar system and the Earth about 4.6 billion years ago. About 4 billion years ago, the first microbes evolved just from random chemical interactions. They get a little better over billions of years through evolution. About 600 million years ago, 550, and there's some debate there, the, uh, the first animals appear underwater. 400 million years ago, they uh, come onto land. You know, you got... You know, millions of years after that, you've got the dinosaurs. They go extinct. Mammals start evolving into apes. Apes evolve into humans. Uh, the oldest creatures that look human-like would be about two million years ago with Homo ergaster and Homo erectus. And all that continues until they evolve into the people we have today. So that's that's your atheistic old Earth view. There's also theistic evolution. That's identical to that view, except they think that God needs to help evolution along but most of the theistic evolutionists i talk to will say that god does it in a way that's not detectable like you look at it it looks just like natural evolution but god is just hidden in the details and does not allow himself to be seen um there's also the intelligent design movement their view is very similar to you know theistic evolution is a broad category there's a lot of nuance and differences in there but intelligent design people with the discovery institute for example 
will say that um, most of them take an older view, but they will say that God is detectable, that we can see and measure what evolution can and can't do, you know, either through a population genetic simulation or just by watching, you know, microbes evolve or, you know, other theoretical models. And they will say that, yes, we can detect that evolution is not powerful enough. And, you know, a designer of some kind, they won't call it God because they're trying to be, quote, scientific, unquote, um, you know, whatever that means. <clears throat> and then, you know, some people in the intelligent design movement accept common descent. They will say that, you know, everything evolved through birth from, you know, the first microbe splitting apart until, you know, apes all the way to humans. Uh, Michael Behe, as I mentioned before, a well-known uh, biochemist in the intelligent design movement will take that view. Other people in the intelligent design movement will say no. Maybe a designer came in and planted life on Earth at different times. Uh, someone like Stephen Meyer will uh, take that view. And there are a minority of people in the intelligent design movement who uh, hold to a young Earth. Um, for example, Paul Nelson is a – I think he's a his philosopher of science. I can't remember. Okay, so old Earth creation is basically the version of of intelligent design that rejects common descent and they will say that god not just a designer old earth creation will say that god specifically created life at different points in earth's past so far all of these views reject a global flood they will say that all the sediments below our feet were deposited over a period of hundreds of millions of years instead of all of once in the year of noah's flood if you want to learn more about old earth creation, you can go to reasons.org. Uh, Hugh Ross and Fuzz Rana, and they've got a few other people there that write a lot of articles uh, promoting the old earth view. Young earth creation will say that the earth is uh, usually six to 10,000 years old, usually closer to 6,000 years. Um, you know, God directly created Adam and Eve at the end of creation week and everything else, stars, uh, you know, the whole universe in creation week. And then what is it about 1600, 1700 years later, after creation, there was a global flood. Water covered the whole surface of the earth. Noah built the ark, um, you know, two or seven of each kind of animal, depending on which type of animal you're talking about, were on the ark. They got off the ark and then all of human history uh, that we know of would be compressed in the time, the 4300 years, 43 150 years since they got off the ark. You know, some of these dates vary a little bit. Some people like the Septuagint, and they'll put the flood about 800 or 1,000 years earlier. I'm not up to speed on that debate because I think the Septuagint – I'm sorry, I'm using a lot of words here. Uh, we have two different uh, old documents of the Old Testament. There's the Septuagint written in Greek and the Masoretic text written in Hebrew. The Septuagint has different ages for some of the uh, very long-lived people. And then what the Masoretic, the Hebrew does. So, you guys, you guys need to stop me if I'm just going on and no, 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 no. You're per, you're you're perfectly fine. You're doing you did great. Very, you did very well uh, describing um, both uh, forms of, of creation. I myself am a young Earth creationist. Uh, Jeremy, you are too. Uh, I believe so, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it, it makes sense to me. They claim that there is no evidence of a worldwide flood. I disagree. Uh, right. with that, um, I know you do as well, Eric. Yeah. And like uh, I said, 
as up to speed on that as I am specifically evolution because this is a newer view for me. I haven't spent as much time on it. Yes. But we can we can we'll we'll get there. Yes. So um so since we know the different forms of, of creationism, uh and then you have also um the various uh different uh scientific uh belief structure of course with the universe being created by the Big Bang, which again is a theory uh, out of nothing, out of chaos, um, uh, and then you have the theory of evolution put forth uh, in uh, modern recorded history by Charles Darwin. Both the the Big Bang and evolution are both theories. They are not scientific law. There are a difference between scientific law and scientific theory, uh, and that if theories are replicated enough. Uh, with enough evidence, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, it becomes a scientific law. But that being said, though, it's not that scientific laws cannot be broken. It's just unlikely that they are broken. Um, and so, you know, both of those are, are theories. You also have what is put forth in the modern um, ancient alien uh, New Age circles, which is panspermia. Uh, that aliens uh, seeded uh, life uh, on the earth. Um, and so that is also uh, being pushed as kind of a new age scientific, you even have kind of transhumanistic elements uh, pushed in panspermia as well. You'll see uh, panspermia being discussed in, in false uh, religions like Scientology, for example, or Rayleighism. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, that's another, uh, you know, some people may scoff at that, but it is, you know, believed, falsely believed, uh, uh, by, um, you know, hundred thousands and millions of people, uh, you know, in, 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 in the world, um, which I completely reject panspermia. Obviously at one time, <clears throat> as Eric may know, I, uh, did believe in, uh, something very similar <laughs> to that view, uh, which I no longer, of course, absolutely reject uh now is being born again uh but you know i i myself was never believed in evolution that i can think of um but the panspermia aspect i, I did at one time foolishly yeah. uh but those Don't are it, con- go ahead Eric. it might surprise you that there's even some people who you know i would consider probably deep in the scientific atheist camp very well-known scientists who have also pushed this pan- panspermia oh that uh, it does, that doesn't I, surprise I think, me i think if I, I hope I'm not wrong with this. I think Fred Hoyle, who was the one who coined the term Big Bang uh, as a derogatory term, he was making fun of it, but he was a fan of Fred Hoyle. I, I, he was a fan of uh, panspermia. Um, I think Francis Crick, who was one of the people who helped discover DNA, I think there's some debate about that. But if I recall, I think he uh, promoted panspermia also more recently. We have, we have two different panspermias, right? So you have one that life came from – Distributed by space dust or meteoroids or asteroids or comets, right? But you also have the other f- form of panspermia that it was done by alien races. Is that was yeah. that made famous by Zacharias Titian? Uh, in modern times, through yeah. ancient aliens, yes, for sure. Right. Uh, but it was talked before before him. Is um, he the guy with the funny hair on History Channel? N- no, that's oh, okay. uh, the guy with the Greek's last name. I can't even. I Those can't, are all his followers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, very, very much so. That's kind of made it. Uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know much about that side. But if I remember, I mean, initially, panspermia was being discussed 
within Greek philosophy, if I remember correctly. I don't remember exactly which Greek philosopher offhand, uh, but it's been going on. For, but you have you know different types, like I mentioned. You have alien origin, and you have uh, um, kind of like a comet or, or asteroid origin. And I guess in final and last thing is you do have what is even put forth by based uh, science man Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a World Future <laughs> Society member, uh, of that we live in a simulation. You have the Gnostic simulation theory, which I also uh, partly believed as a Gnostic myself that it was possible. And as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we could be a simulation in a snot-nosed kid's uh, basement, alien's basement in the computer of uh the the you know the, the futuristic domicile of what they live in uh and so to me you know that's how can someone seriously believe something like that but scoff at us believing uh that a all uh knowing um long suffering you know all love all, you know all all loving all perfect and just creator uh created everything to me that's just it's just Is sad Elon Musk on board with all that too uh yes and no. Uh, for all okay, we know, he might a... be. For all we know, with the the recent uh, Kanye yay uh, disclosures on Twitter, for all we know, Elon Musk might be a Raelian. For all we know, that's another discussion for another time. I haven't, um, I haven't kept up with it. It's funny so, because go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say a lot of the evidence that, or some of the evidence that they will cite for you know the simulation overlaps with evidence that the well, it's basically evidence that the universe is designed. And, yes. you know, you've, you've probably heard of the fine-tuning argument. It goes like this, that, um, you know, if you're going to sit down at a computer and write a simulation to make a universe, I'm a software developer, so I like this analogy. If you're just writing random laws into your universe, uh, 99.99999, however many percent of your universes aren't going to have anything interesting happening in them. You know, atoms aren't going to stick together or whatever your equivalent of what you're going to build a structure of, it's not going to, you know, be finely tuned like a Lego brick so it can snap into another Lego brick. Uh, a specific example of that in our universe would be the uh, strong nuclear force. You know, protons are positively charged, but they're packed together inside the middle of an atom. You need another force holding those together. That's called the strong force. That way they, you know, all these positive forces don't push the atom apart and it just falls apart. But at the same time, the strong force has to only act over a short distance. Otherwise, all of your atoms are going to just clump together into one giant atom. So if you're making your strong force in our universe, it has to have a specific value, not too strong, not too weak. And then you um, you can have atoms, you can have a periodic table. Otherwise, atoms fall apart or you just get yeah. one super atom. You can't build stars or planets or, you know, my cat out of uh, anything if you don't have atoms. And that's one of several dozen examples of the laws and constants in our universe that have to be in a narrow range to allow for life to exist. You know, and if our universe is simulated, then what kind of universe do the simulators live in? Doesn't it have to be exactly. fine-tuned also? You're just exactly. you're not solving the problem. You're just pushing it back. Yes, exactly. You're not solving it. Uh, and, and how far fine-tuned our universe is for us to exist uh, and how complicated life is on Earth. You know, we're going to talk about, you know, evolution versus creationism from a bio biological sense in a minute. Um, in my opinion, there would be no processing capabilities uh, 
you know, well enough to be able to handle that in assimilation and then to be able to exist, like you said, outside of the world of which the assimilation takes place in. Um, it's just too much in my humble opinion. Um, and so, Eric, uh, so I guess to start with, um, can you briefly describe what the theory of evolution is um, and how yeah, it sure, counteracts with to. creationism? Okay, so first I just want to take the perspective of how it's supposed to work. And, you know, I just want to, you know, this is the same explanation that your uh, introductory to biology teacher in college would give you or whatever class you're taking. So the idea is that, well, as you know, all of us have uh, DNA inside of all of our cells. If you take it a little simpler, um, I'm trying to think of the best analogy here. Let's start with um, a hippo, for example, a hippopotamus. You know, its DNA has a lot of the instructions to take the hippopotamus from a single celled, uh, uh, you know, in the womb to uh, all the way to a fully grown hippopotamus. And, you know, there's information outside the DNA, too, but I'm trying to keep it simple. So, you know, a mutation is just a change to the DNA. It can be one letter of information, the DNA changing to something else. It can be. One piece of DNA getting copied twice. It can be one section of it flipped around backwards. It can go be a piece of DNA that, you know, doesn't get copied and goes missing. And there's other types of mutations also. If there's no mutations, every time a hippopotamus, mommy and daddy hippopotamus have a baby hippopotamus, you're going to get, you know, some of the DNA from mom being activated, some of the DNA from dad, and you get your baby hippopotamus with a mix of traits. And, you know, that can go on forever, and they're always hippopotamuses, hippopotami. I don't know what the plural is. But let's say uh, there is a mutation that uh, deals with the toes. Do hippopotami have toes? Hippopotamuses have toes? I'm not sure. I'm sure they do. But um, And let's say they have webbed feet because of this mutation. Maybe this mutation disables whatever, turns off, or makes the skin split apart between the toes. And they can swim a little bit better in the water. And let's say these guys are living in the water anyway, and the one with webbed feet can uh, survive better. He can uh, get more food. He does better. Because of that, he uh, has more offspring. Or he, his, his wife, who let's say it's a female one, and this one has more offspring. So over time, let's say over you know, 10,000, 100,000 years, eventually all of this population uh, – eventually has webbed feet because their offspring do better and the ones without the webbed feet don't. And, uh, you know, you can keep changing this creature over time just very gradually through these very small changes until you get to a whale because, according to evolution, uh, whales evolved from land mammals that would have been something vaguely like a hippopotamus or a bear. And, you know, one mutation, you know, might uh, move the nostrils up the forehead. Another mutation uh, might... Uh, change one letter in one gene that affects hearing so that they can hear slightly better. And, you know, you, we're, we're getting toward echolocation here. And this is the idea. The idea, as I said before, is that all life would have evolved through this process from a single-celled, from a single-celled bacteria, you know, billions of years ago. Are you with me so far? Yes, yes I am. Yes, I am. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's the basic idea of, how evolution works. You know, it's changed a lot since Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin didn't know about DNA. Uh, you know, in the 1920s or 30s, you have what's called the modern synthesis, 
that's where they took Darwin's ideas and they blended them with Gregor Mendel, you know, the the monk who uh, did the breeding experiments with uh, peas. And uh, the modern synthesis is still the version of evolution we're on today. There's some biologists who are coming up with, uh, you know, other ideas because mathematically there's a lot of very serious problems with the modern synthesis. We'll get to that a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the gist. Okay. So, um, briefly, if you can explain from a creationistic standpoint, why that's incorrect. Oh, briefly, huh? <laughs> if all possible, yes. <laughs> but I know it's probably going to take a Okay, that, okay. But... There's a little synopsis. Two... Okay, sure. I'm just kidding. There's, yeah, there's two main issues I take with this. Is um, The good thing about the modern synthesis is that it's fairly easy to simulate. Like, I'm talking about, when I talk about an evolution simulation, I'm not talking about 3D animals walking around in a video game. But just a database of all the DNA, making random changes to it and saying, hey, assigning a number to each mutation where this mutation will make the organism 0.1% stronger or 0.1% weaker. And over time, you can just, you know, throw in whatever numbers you want into this. Well, this many mutations are beneficial. This many mutations are harmful. You got this many DNA. The DNA recombines this many uh, letters between mom and dad, so you get the mix. Uh, you know, parents have this many offsprings. When you write a simulation like this, um, every every simulation that uses realistic parameters that at least vaguely correlate with how things happen with living things in the real world, every simulation shows life going downhill. At least if we're talking about complicated life with a lot of letters. Uh, for example, humans and probably most mammals get around 70 to 100 mutations every generation. Um, it used to be the case, you know, years ago that the evolutionary biologists could argue almost all of our DNA does nothing. It's just random noise. There's only maybe 1%, 3% of it, 5% of it that does anything useful. Therefore, of these 70 to 100 mutations we get every generation, mutations being changes to DNA, almost all of them are just changing the random parts that don't do anything anyway. In modern times, we've discovered that a very, very lot of our DNA is functional. Uh, there was the ENCODE project in 2012. They were very controversial because they said 80% of DNA is functional. And that number might go to 100%. And we got to be careful when we talk about function because, um, you know, one definition of function is, hey, this DNA has a gene. A gene is a bunch of hundreds or thousands of letters of DNA that do something, but maybe you can change some letters in it. And there's a lot of nuance there. I want to I want to skip over some of that for time. But the numbers they were coming out with were far, far more DNA that was functional than the evolutionary biologists were comfortable with. And this started some debates between the medical geneticists who were doing this function research and the evolutionary biologists who said, if you're right, evolution is wrong. That's a, a very famous quote by uh, evolutionary biologist Dan Grauer. He uh, published that in the scientific literature. No, he he had that in a presentation that he gave. So the gist of it is, is that if we're getting 70 to 100 mutations per generation and these mutations are landing in DNA that's doing something, 
and this DNA is pretty specific in, you know, the sequence it needs to make proteins and everything else that functions with all the RNAs, then a large number of those mutations are harmful. So there's a creationist. Uh, his name is John Sanford. He His path is pretty similar to my own, where he started out as a plant geneticist. Well, I wasn't a plant geneticist, but um, he he came here through the science. But uh, he was a plant geneticist. He realized that, you know, this is a serious problem. And he, over the years, eventually became a young earth creationist. He's wrote a well-known book called, uh, well, well-known among creationists, book called Genetic Entropy. And with other uh, scientists, he uh, wrote a piece of software called Mendel's Accountant after Gregor Mendel. Keeping, and it just, it's an evolution simulation like what I described, population genetic simulation. And even if he just has, you know, five or ten harmful mutations per generation, no matter how you fiddle with the parameters, keeping it, you know, at least vaguely realistic, you know, trying to be as generous as possible to evolution, it still shows that every generation, it gets worse over time because these harmful mutations are arriving faster than natural selection can remove them. You know, uh, if you have 10 kids and all of your kids have, you know, 8 to 12 new harmful mutations and one out of 10,000 of them have a helpful mutation, which in this case almost zero, zero of your kids have a helpful mutation, which of those 10 kids are you going to pick for, you know, to further the race if everyone's worse? Yeah. yeah. And the idea is that if evolution can't even maintain our DNA, it couldn't have created it. Now, I want to be careful with this argument because if we apply it to very simple organisms like bacteria, I think an E. coli has only one mutation every 2,000 replications. So, you know, they might be fine. They might not be getting worse every generation. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. But once we get into big, complicated things like us and birds and octopuses and, you know, anything that has a lot of DNA to make it function, then you're into real trouble if you want to if you want evolution to keep making it better because all the signs show that it's getting worse. So that's one reason that I think evolution has a lot of problems from a genetics perspective. Um, another one is just the microbes that I mentioned earlier. In the past several decades, we've watched there's been a lot of very well-studied uh, pathogenic microbes. We study them because they cause disease and we want to know how they're evolving. Uh, for example, the HIV virus, it has a very simple genome. I think it's only about 10,000 letters of uh, RNA, not DNA. You can think of RNA as a molecule very similar to DNA, but that's what stores their uh, genetic instructions that makes the HIV virus. We've uh, seen probably in the human population since HIV first entered humans, possibly as early as the 1930s or 1920s, HIV has replicated itself probably around 10 to the power of 22 times during that time. Huge, huge number. You can't even imagine a one followed by 22 zeros is how many HIV viruses have existed in the last 100 years inside of humans. And during that time, we've watched them evolve. Um, I'm one of the creationists. That I will say, yeah, evolution can create new and useful information. It's just so stupidly slow at it that you're, you, you can't put any hope in it. Um, HIV has changed the shape of its shell so that, you know, it can avoid the human immune system. 
it um oh it's been several years since I've read these papers. I hope I'm not getting this wrong. But I looked into this a lot at one time. It's uh human cells have little tethers like harpoons they will shoot out and try to stab viruses inside the cell to keep the cell the virus from escaping and infecting other cells. And that's called tethering after like a tether. And HIV uh, changed up one of its genes in a fairly substantial way to avoid getting tethered so it can escape and become more effective in humans. Well, there, there's, well there's numerous viruses or even bacteria. I mean, bacteria have uh, uh, different, uh, different mechanisms uh, to – Oh, yeah, yeah. To... It's, it's, really, it's, it's really complicated. Yeah, so, I mean, d- different organisms have different methods to uh, evade our immune system. Yeah. Um, to survive, I mean, you know, that that's very well known yeah. in microbiology. But, yeah, but as best we can tell, it, I think it did evolve. I don't know if there's any creationists who dispute this, who are into the genetics. But my point is, it took. I would, I, I mean, would argue, ad, I would argue, adaptation would be my argument. It, it depends on how you want to define the words. That's but, correct. Uh, yes, not too yeah. conspiratorial, but we've also been tampering with some of these things like we have labs in total we have projects that are dedicated to studying viruses yeah, and, I mean, you know not to go down the, the conspiracy I, route I, but i i used to think that was nuts but then covid so <laughs> yeah. there you go now i'm kicked off yeah oh sorry about that and um, there's a possibility that through those labs and through that human uh manipulation that some of these microbes have adapted um, uh, ways for them to become more pathogenic that they normally not would have not occurred in the wild sure, as quickly but, or if at all. Sure, but let's pretend that's not true, and let's build the strongest possible case for evolution here before we tear it down. I like it. I like it. Go on. Okay. So if you just – Go with the old Earth evolutionary timeline. Mammals would have first started evolving maybe 200 million years ago. You know, you have something that's kind of like an amphibian, and all the other mammals would have evolved from that over hundreds of millions of years. During that time, there would have been only about 10 to the power of 20 mammals that ever existed. Now, if you just remember, I said there were 10 to the power of 22 HIV that have existed in humans in the past 100 years. So the idea is that if we compare that 10 to the 20 mammals, that's 100 times more HIV we've watched evolve than mammals that would have ever existed. And, you know, we're, they're evolving into bats and whales and uh, giraffes and me and that weird platypus thing they have in Australia. And the idea is that, you know, if most of our DNA is functional, which I think we have a lot of very good uh, evidence that it is, then – and, you know, we compare the DNA between, you know, me and a horse and a platypus and a whale, then, you know, a lot of these more different mammals only have about 5 or 10 percent of their DNA that's the same. So, you know, to get that much variation, evolution would need to be producing hundreds of billions of letters of new and useful information to get all the diverse functions we see in mammals, you know, echolocation and uh, platypus's venom. And, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. And you compare that to how much new and useful information we've seen arrive in HIV in the past hundred years, and you have what's essentially, you know, millions of times difference between the rate we see evolution producing information 
and present versus what it would need to produce in the past to get to where we are. And, you know, I just mentioned HIV. You can do this with any microbe you want. Um, you know, Plasmodium falciparum, which causes malaria. Uh, there's been a, oh, probably around 10 to the 21, 10 to the power of 22 of those also in the last hundred years, you know, infecting humans, you know, sad and terrible ways. That's why we study it so much. But, you know, it's it's evolved to evade various drugs. For example, it changed uh, one to four letters of its DNA to uh, evade the drugs adivoquin and uh, pyrimethamine. Uh, John, you can correct me if I'm pronouncing these wrong. No, you're correct. It's, it's, it's <laughs> developed mechanisms to develop a yeah. chlor- chloroquine uh, resistance. Yeah, well, I'll get to chloroquine here in a second. But with uh, adivoquin and pyrimethamine, I believe it's just changing the shape of one of its proteins so that it still latches onto the food, but it doesn't latch onto the drug and it doesn't try to eat it. Uh, when it evolved resistance to chloroquine, it changed between, I think, two to ten letters of its DNA. And two of those letters had to change simultaneously. Otherwise, one or the other, it wouldn't work. And that made its digestive vacuole, its tummy, uh, either positively or negatively charged. I'd have to check. And then the chloroquine, I think, was either the same was the same charge, and it it just doesn't go in. And we see we see this uh, parasite evolve resistance to adivoquin and pyrimethamine, the one to four letters. It takes about a trillion a trillion of them exposed to that drug before one of them, you know, hits the genetic lottery and gets what it needs. Uh, with uh, chloroquine, there needs to be about ten to the power of twenty of them exposed to that drug before you know, it follows the right pathway of mutations. And, you know, some of these mutations, a lot of these mutations are just one helps a little bit, the next one helps a little more, the next one helps a little more, and so on. It's a gradual path. But, you know, we're well beyond the total number of mammals that have ever lived, and we're talking about changing the charge of a protein here. It's it's stupidly small compared to everything you need to get mammals. Evolution completely fails in very embarrassing ways genetically. So. And, I mean, those, if you're just talking about genetics, those are the main two reasons I would reject evolution, just because it destroys faster than it creates, and it creates at a ridiculously stupidly slow rate. Too slow, even if you believe the Earth is billions of years old. Way, way too slow. Now, I'm going to ask, and I might not be even phrasing this correctly, but from the time, from the the point that these drugs were made, uh, in your opinion, how long did it take? I know you said that it, it has to be exposed to trillions of, yeah. of microbes, but how, you know what I mean? Like, was it 20 years or when, when think people with, started to notice? I think with chloroquine, which was it, that's the one that takes 10 to the power of 20. Um, I think it happens about once every five or 10 years, and it's happened about 10 times. Wow. I okay. think that's the estimate. I, there's uh, Tim. What's his name? He's got a paper. I can't remember his name, but he's Tim White. He has a paper published on this where he goes through the estimates. All right. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, just, I was just curious, to be honest, but keep going. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, that's genetic. And, and, I mean, most, could... qua- and most quantine derivatives outside of um, – uh, what was the specific bark that contains um, – quantity and have to look up over it off offhand but outside of that it's only been i would say used as a medication to treat malaria the quantine derivatives 120 odd years maybe 110 odd years Interesting. 
somewhere on there. So let me, I'll have to look at the bark that they were using. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on it, but, um, go ahead. No, um, and I can talk about other things. I can talk about other things in genetics that I find compelling evidence of design. Like Shoshona bark. Sorry, I just want to say that. Shoshona bark. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or I can talk about fossils. How long do you guys want to go on this? I got two hours max. Okay, so it's up let's to talk you guys. More, let's, let's talk more about genetics then. That sounds good to me. You know, you know, I mentioned earlier in the Bible that I think we see certain patterns that are consistent with um, it being real history and patterns that are surprising. If it was just all made up, um, you mentioned the case for Christ. I love uh, Peter J. Williams' new book. Um, Can we trust the Gospels? It goes through a lot of that, but you know, that's kind of a side road here. The I think also if we look at living things, we should expect them to look one way if they were designed and a different way if they evolved. And it's very easy for people to get caught up in this They're like, oh, my back hurts. There's no way my back's designed or I've got, you know, I've got cancer, which is a very serious thing. Or, you know, the Those are consequences of, from the fall, obviously. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yes. And I mean, we see that genetically, you know, like I said, if we run the simulations, we get worse every generation. Well, this is what happens. And it's also probably why we see the lifespans decreasing in Genesis. You know, before the flood, people are living up to 900 and something years. And then after the flood, the lifespans get a lot shorter. Which so, really, only, so would you say the ahead. reason why we're living longer now, per se, is because of the advancements of modern nutrition and sanitation and Absolutely. medicine, even though there's drawbacks Absolutely. to them to some yeah. degree? Uh, Absolutely. But, That's called the Flynn effect. You know, we've got better water. Uh, we're, we've got all our vitamins, uh, you know, we can debate about how effective, you know, some of our modern pharmaceuticals are, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, our, and, you know, you look at the average lifespan has decreased drastically in the last hundred, 200 years. A lot of that is just decreasing infant mortality. The utopian dream of, uh, I would say the, I would say the utopian transhumanist, um, dream of life extension uh, that a lot of the elites are pouring money into. I mean, as Christians, you know, we would believe it's it's it's, it's unfeasible. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but it we, does it does explain like you 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 are right though the fall does explain um, the corruption of of our um, uh, DNA over time, uh, yeah. which really doesn't completely match up match up with survival of the fittest and evolution and uh, even I guess definitely not eugenical evolution, right? Because yeah. we're we're, de- we're de- over time we're degrading and and not upgrading. Like we Absolutely. have to have real intervention to to get humans to be upgraded. But if we were to leave it all natural, we're all downgrading. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, if we yeah. want to, if if we want to, if we want to cure a lot of our diseases and live longer, we're going to need Adam's genome. And right now, nobody in the transhumanist movement even believes Adam existed. So I don't think they're going to get there anytime soon, you know. And, you know, I, even if we could, you know, there's been the population bottleneck of the flood. And it might be entirely impossible to recover Adam's genome. Adam, of course, also had the tree of life, which we have no idea what that was. So, yeah, it is, you know, I, I'm i hoping we can still increase keep increasing how long we can live but we're not going to live forever transhumanism has no ultimate salvation for us 
Yep. Amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah. And, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw an article maybe around 2012 where some geneticists were able to track our genome back to one common ancestor. And I uh, think they said Adam and Eve, but. Yeah, they there's been the science news websites run with that once <laughs> once every few years. Um, so mitochondrial Eve. Would you mind if I talk a little bit more about the population bottleneck at the flood first? No, hey, go ahead. You want to go, dude. Okay, because that's something that's something I do know a little more about, but I want to talk about mitochondrial Eve also. So, what's really interesting is that as a man gets older, you know, every kid gets their DNA from both mom and dad. As a man gets older, the number of mutations in the DNA in the sperm increases exponentially. That's something we've only discovered in modern times. So, you know, if you're um, having kids, if you're a man and you're having kids at 80 versus 40, your DNA is going to have a lot more mutations. And what would be really interesting is to follow that out to see how many mutations someone has, a man has, when he's 500 years old and has kids like Noah did. And you look at the, the lifespans in Genesis. Right after the flood, you know, they're down to 200 years while Noah lived like 600 years. So Noah's kids, Noah had his kids a lot older than the other patriarchs. And then right after the flood, what happens? These uh, these three men and their three wives have kids. And who do their kids marry? Their cousins, because they're the only people alive, only humans alive. And now not only do you have a huge number of mutations from Noah's very, very old sperm, but you have inbreeding. And the populations just, or the lifespans, they just, you know, 200 years and then eventually down to around 100 years and below. And it looks exactly like what you would expect from, you know, modeling it with modern genetics. And my question is, is if you believe that this is made up by a bunch of ancient goat herders, how do they, how do they know all this? How do they know all this to get this, this lifespan decay curve looking so well? It, it looks a lot like, you know, what really happened? You with me on that? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. So next I can talk about – oh, one more thing is that – oh, two more things on that. So, John, what's the name of that disease where uh, you – the kids, their DNA mutates a lot faster because their DNA repair me- mechanisms are broken and they only live to around 10 or 15 years old? Uh, give me a minute. I'll have to, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. Um, give me one quick minute. Yeah. Yeah, but these these very very unfortunate kids. I mean, they're they're getting gray hair at ten years old and cataracts and you know wrinkly skin and all these progeria. Yes, thank you, thank you, progeria. So, what happens in that disease is that the machines that repair the DNA are broken and they get a lot more mutations. And that shows us that the more mutations you have, the more harmful mutations you have, which most almost all the mutations, if they affect anything, are harmful, then you get old a lot younger. So Well all of us all of us are all of us are walking around with precancerous or even cancerous cells uh from mutations that the immune system, you know, unless you develop 
um, you know, a tumor or, uh, you know, a metastasizing tumor even, um, the, the body's immune system, uh, through numerous or through numerous other, uh, mechanisms of cell, uh, apoptosis or mitochondrial apoptosis where the cell destroys itself or the mitochondria destroy themselves to destroy the cell to prevent yeah. the cancer cell from proliferating. Um, I mean, that exists through all of us. All three of us speaking right now have precancerous, uh, cells or, you know, God Absolutely, forbid, yeah. hopefully not cancerous yeah. cells within our body. Yeah. All of our cells are accumulating mutations, and that's one of the main causes of aging. There's other causes also. But remember what I talked about the, with the population genetic simulations, how every generation is worse. Every generation has more harmful mutations, and more harmful mutations leads to more aging. Run that backwards, and you go back in time. Each generation has fewer and fewer harmful mutations. If they have fewer harmful mutations, we would absolutely expect for them to age more slowly. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if I had never heard of the Bible. Just looking at this, I would think, huh, I wonder if people thousands of generations ago lived hundreds of years. And, hey, you open up Genesis, that's what you see. What's also interesting is that cultures all around the world have stories of their ancestors living a very long time. Not every culture does it, but there's lots of them. Wikipedia even has a list of this. Okay, so yep. that's all I got, about, got on that. Next, I can talk about either um, patterns and living things that are consistent with design, or I can talk about mitochondrial Eve. Uh, whichever way you want to go, bro. Uh, but before we go to that point, I just wanted to say, like, you know, it, what you're saying rings true, because if you look in the Bible, like, how old was Abraham when he had his kids? You know uh, what I mean? 100. He was 100, and right. Sarah was 90. And Although at the time, Sarah was already past childbearing age at 90. Right. Right, that's interesting. And even now they say, like, a woman shouldn't try to have kids after the age of 40 because the right, chances right. of, you know, that baby yeah. having some sort of but, genetic mutation goes yeah, way up. But, but at the same time, you know, these other men, I think, in Egypt were interested in Sarah, even though she was very old. So, you know, very old by our standards. So maybe, you know, we still see some of that at that time. That's true. And then Abraham, I think he lived 140-something years. I don't remember exactly. I'd have to look it up. Something around there. Yeah, he was several generations after Noah. Okay, let's talk about patterns and living things that look like they were designed. You know, Sounds good. This is one of those simple games of, uh, hey, if evolution created us, we'd expect this. If we're created, we'd expect that. I mentioned junk DNA already. Uh, if evolution created us... You know, evolution can't preserve more than a very small percentage of our DNA. So if we evolved, we would expect only a very small percentage of our DNA to be functional. And for 50 years from the time DNA was discovered until, you know, ENCODE started releasing more information, the, that was the dominant belief. I've searched the literature and I can't find anyone who is in population genetics who takes an evolutionary view and that's almost all of them, that uh, would say that more than a small percentage of our DNA was functional. And now we have quotes from medical researchers saying, hey, you guys misled us. You uh, told us that, you know, there's not much point in looking in the rest of this DNA to find the causes of genetic diseases because it's not doing anything useful. And now we know better. But, I mean, that's just one very basic pattern of A versus B. For design, most of our DNA should be functional. And if the Earth is young, a very high percentage of it should be functional because we've only had, 
you know, 6,000 or so years since creation. But if evolution created us, it's a very messy process through trial and error. We would expect almost all, very little of our DNA to do something. Um, another interesting pattern we see in genetics is the tree of life. Uh, this is not the tree of life of Genesis. This is trying to put all of the animals or bacteria or whatever you're working with into a family tree to see what evolved from what. So, I mean, we can easily do this with humans and, you know, take genetics tests and say, oh, this guy is either his brother or his uh, uncle. Or, you know, these people are very distantly related and we can take give genetics tests to build a family tree if you don't know the relationships. You know, it's not perfect, but you can get fairly close. So for a long time, the uh, evolutionary biologists have been doing this with uh, various groups of plants and animals and microbes. And, you know, if you do it for animals, example, uh, you will or any of them, really, you see that uh, some of the genes tell one evolutionary story and some of the genes tell a different evolutionary story. And there's a lot of debate about what evolved from what. Imagine if you went to the cereal aisle at the grocery store and you're trying to build a family tree of all the cereals and you got your frosted mini wheats and your blueberry mini wheats and your mini wheats with, uh, you know, no frosting or flavor in them at all. And you're like, oh, well, that's easy. I can build a family tree out of this. But then you look over here and wait, the blueberry is also, uh, we've also got blueberry Captain Crunch and we've also got, uh, some other cereal blueberry. Well, now your story is not so simple anymore. You know, you got your honey nut Cheerios. Oh, Cheerios evolved honey. And then, no, a honey bunches of oats have honey, and they're not related to Cheerios at all. And this is what we see when we try to build a family tree out of all the genes and all the animals. But this looks a lot more like what you would expect under design, where a designer can choose any you know genes he wants to make an organism. For example, did you know that echolocating whales and dolphins share hearing genes with echolocating bats? You know, you wouldn't expect this under evolution. You would expect that if they're both echolocating, it'd be a very different system. Yes, so that's uh, yeah. So I mean, I mean, these are just a small number of examples. There's many, many examples you could pull from. I don't have a list. I've seen other people build lists. Um. What's another one? Genetic redundancy is really interesting. So we usually think of redundancy as a bad thing, um, but in terms of design, it's a very good thing. For example, um, one of my favorite engineers and software developers is Walter Bright. Walter Bright used to work for Boeing Airlines as an engineer. And he describes how they would build the uh, the flight control computer. They would have two teams both implementing a flight control computer. And they even had a third team that made sure that team A didn't talk, wasn't, didn't talk to team B and they weren't accidentally doing the same thing. They weren't using the same programming languages or the same uh, computer chips or anything. And when it, it comes time to put the flight control computer in the airplane, which one did they pick? They put both in there and they even have a third team building a uh, comparing program that compares the output of the first flight control software versus the second flight control software. And if they ever differ, then the whole thing shuts down and the pilot is alerted. And not only do they have one program that compares the outputs, they've got another one built by another team that compares those outputs. That is that is redundancy. And that is why 
flying on an airplane is as reliable as what it is, is because you don't build something thinking, oh, this will never fail. You completely strike that attitude from your mindset. Uh, NASA uses this also when they're building space probes to go to Mars. So that's good engineering. We see the same thing in us. Uh, for example, one of many, many, many examples is the pacemaker for our hearts. We actually have three different pacemakers for our hearts. You know, it still goes bad eventually. But um, you can, through experiments, I think they do these in mice and not people, I hope. But they uh, they knock out the pacemaker and, hey, the other one gradually kicks in as you gradually disable. The no, they one. no, they do it in humans. It's called ab- ablation. Okay, but they're actually deliberately. Medical procedure. It's a medical procedure. Yes, they do. They do, do okay. it deliberately. Yes. Okay. I hope there's a good reason for that. Most of the time, it's to correct a supposedly correct a the rhythm of the heart or arrhythmia that they're not able to correct by medication or any other form of treatment. So then, that's when they do a, a uh, ablation in the hope that the heart maintains normal sinus rhythm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. But um, the genes that code for these uh, different systems are all different from each other. Like if evolution produced it, you know, like I mentioned before, some mutations are just copying a gene and making it twice. If evolution made redundancy, you would just expect if there's one system that exists twice, it would just be the same thing over and over again. But we see genes that are built completely different ways and systems that work in completely different ways. That way, something that might make one fail the second system is not going to be subject to the same uh, weakness. Um, I think they did studies in yeast, and uh, they found the majority of redundancy in yeast was not from duplicate genes, but just unrelated genes doing the same thing. And this is very widespread. It's actually one of the things that makes finding function in the genome so hard. Because, I mean, if you take a simplistic mindset, you're like, oh, what's this gene do? We'll disable it on the mouse and see how the mouse changes. You disable the gene, nothing happens. That's because there's another gene somewhere else that looks nothing like the first gene that does the same thing. Um, so that's another, that's a third pattern in living things that looks very much like what we'd expect from very intelligent design versus how evolution would make it. Uh, in some cases, let's see, I'll talk about alternate reading frames. You know, you can have some places in our DNA where you read it in one direction, it's one gene. You read it backwards, it's a completely different gene doing something else. Which, you know, if you're gradually changing something one letter at a time, imagine a sentence that reads has one message if you read it forward and another one, a different message that if you read it backwards. Well, it's very hard to get to that sentence changing one letter at a time because you're going to break the other one. But if you have a very intelligent creator who's just showing off, this is how smart I am, I can even do this, then, you know, it's not as surprising. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think there's, yeah, and, you know, if you know DNA, it comes together. um, ah, I can't explain this without getting into a lot of details, but there's also ones that are three ways, not just forward and backwards, but a third way. But I'm going to skip the details on that one. Uh, Where do you want to go from here? Do you want to talk about fossils? Do you want to talk about mitochondrial Eve? Do you want to talk about theology? Um, Um. Fossils, fossils is extremely interesting. I okay. guess we could talk about that briefly to talk about mitochondrial uh, Eve and then, and then close the show. Um, sure. But, I mean, Jeremy, do you have any questions when it comes to, to fossilization or fossil records of any kind? No, sir. I mean, I have my opinions, but I'll listen to what he has to say. 
All right, Eric, go ahead. So, I mean, we haven't even got to the age of the Earth yet, but like I said, I don't have as much I can say on that, unfortunately, because I haven't studied as much. So fossils. Um, If you, you know, you go to YouTube and watch the atheist channels, they will say that all of the fossils that we dig out of the ground give us a very grand picture of evolution of one organism gradually changing into another, into another, into another, into another. And if you read biology textbooks at the high school or college level, they'll sometimes say the same thing. If you go to the paleontology journals, they will give you a very different picture. Um, for example, there's a uh, article by Don Prothero, who is an atheist who studied under the well-known paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. And this guy is uh, no friend of intelligent design. You can find YouTube videos of Don Prothero debating against intelligent design peoples. And he will say in this article that he published in Skeptic Magazine. This isn't a journal, but he publishes in journals also. Michael Shermer's Skeptic Magazine, he says that um, – let me – actually, let me bring it up and find this. I want to read the quote exactly. Uh, let's see. And many skeptics, as you well know, Eric, uh, like to laugh at creationist believers like UI and Jeremy and uh, many born again believers listening to buy their fruits uh, that they mm-hmm. ha- their that their IQ or their degrees are large enough um, to uh, kind of give them a superior thought uh, and look down on many people who believe in creationism as um, having uh, lesser uh, schooling or, or or lesser intelligence. Um, uh, yeah, I've yeah, seen I it see quite it frequently. I've seen it quite frequently online, and I'm pretty sure you have have as well too. Thousands of times. And there's literally. a difference between science so falsely called, as Paul warned young Pastor Timothy, uh, which would be you know more of your transhumanist, cabalist, uh, kind of uh, cabalist interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, and you know actually digging into you know biology from a creationist perspective or chemistry. You know I teach. Uh, at my uh, church's uh, Christian school, I teach high schoolers anatomy and physiology, uh, 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 physical science, and chemistry uh, from a creationist uh, Christian biblical perspective. Um, and a lot of uh, skeptics will scoff and say, well, you're not preparing them uh, for college yeah, or yeah, STEM yeah, or no, the no. real world, which is just, it's completely, fishy, uh, completely just wrong. It's completely flat out wrong. But I know that you've yeah. seen it. You've seen the mockery that comes from skeptics. All the time. And they will say, oh, we've got a gap in the fossil record. And then they'll find some organism where the bones are, ha- you know, you got organism A and you got organism C and creation. This is what they'll say. They'll say, oh, creationists are say there's a gap. And then they find organism B that's halfway between those two. And then they'll say, oh, creationists say, oh, now you got two gaps. And that's not the picture the fossil record actually shows. Let me read this quote from Don Prothero in Skeptic Magazine of all places. He's talking about uh, – Punctuated equilibrium. I don't, I'm going to skip over explaining that because I don't think it's necessary here, but that's the context. He said the first major discovery was that stasis was much more prevalent in the fossil record than it had been previously supposed. By stasis, he means, you know, in a lower layer versus an upper layer, it's just all the same type of bones all the way through. Then you get to a new layer and it's something different, but I'll keep reading. Uh, continuing the quote Many paleontologists came forward and pointed out that the geological Literature was one vast monument to stasis, 
with relatively few cases where anyone had observed gradual evolution. If species didn't appear suddenly in the fossil record and remain relatively un unchanged, then biostratigraphy would never work. And yet almost two centuries of successful biostratigraphic, biostratigraphic correlations was evidence of just that kind of pattern. As Stephen Jay Gould put it, he was the most famous paleontologist, it was the, quote, dirty little secret, quote, end quote, hidden in the paleontological closet. Most paleontologists were trained to focus on gradual evolution as the only pattern of interest and ignored stasis as not evolutionary change and therefore uninteresting. So they didn't care about stasis. They didn't look at stasis because they didn't think it was interesting because they wanted to see evolution. Uh, continuing the quote, once Eldridge and Gould had pointed out, Gould, had pointed out that stasis was equally important, stasis as data, in Gould's words, paleontologists all over the world saw that stasis was the general pattern and that gradualism was rare, and that is still the consensus 40 years later. Like, could you ever imagine going to some atheist YouTube channel and reading this quote? Not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. They yeah. would never say something like this, not even close. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to overstate my, say, my case because we do find different organisms in different fossil layers. For example, humans are only found in the top layers. Dinosaurs are only found in the middle layers. Trilobites are only found in the lower layers. Um, and there's, you know, various layers below that. But of the uh, layers where you find animals, that's the pattern. And you see that pattern with a lot of species. And, you know, we can talk about the flood and how maybe different the world was in different ecological zones before the flood that were destroyed in a different order. Uh, you know, you see more aquatic life forms in lower layers versus more terrestrial life forms in, in higher layers. But I don't want to get into that discussion. I want to focus just on evolution here. So that's the first thing that's important to know about fossils is that you see stasis. Something new appears, it changes, it stays the same through several layers, and then you don't see it again as you keep going up through the layers. The other thing I want to point out, and this is even more important, is that if you try to take all the bones of all the organisms we have, we'll focus on animals here, everyone knows animals, and you try to build a family tree out of them, there's something very interesting that emerges. That is, if you're trying to group species into family trees, uh, for example, species might be uh, horses, donkeys, and zebras. They are very similar, and you know you can build a, a decent family tree out of them. You throw in the genus, which is the next level up, or the family, the next level up, you can still kind of build family trees out of that. But the higher you go up the hierarchy of organization here, you know, phyla, um, <clears throat> you know, phyla, class, order, uh, family, genus, species, the closer you get to the phyla, the bigger the gaps are. Like the gap between two um, classes, like uh, mammals and birds or reptiles or whatever you want to throw in there would be um, much larger than the gaps between, you know, a genus, two, two genera, the plural of genus, especially between two species. It's like if you're drawing a family tree, you got all the leaves, but uh, the trunk and the branches are mostly missing. And this pattern looks a lot like design. Remember the cereal aisle at the grocery store? You can put your your frosted mini wheats into a very nice family tree. You can put your various flavors of honey bunches of oats into a nice family tree. But once you go further back in that family tree and you try to build a consistent picture 
of what evolved from what, you're not finding your fossils. And it doesn't work very well. Um, you know, if we're talking about design things, you could do the same thing with cell phones. You know, Apple's and Android phones look pretty similar. They're probably pretty closely related. But you go back further, oh, cell phone and a tablet, a little different cell phone and a laptop, a little more different. Now, what's the common ancestor between a computer and an ICBM missile? You got nothing. What if you throw a tricycle in there? It's even worse. You got the leaves, but you don't have the branches of this family tree. And creationists, they don't call it a family tree. They call it an orchard because under the creation model, you know, God creates all these organisms. God created the ancestor of all the equids, you know, the horses, the donkeys, and the zebras. And then over time, you know, they, uh, through, I'll call it evolutionary change, sure. It's kind of a different type of change than what the evolutionists want to go for. But, you know, you get them differentiating into zebras and donkeys and horses. Uh, most creationists, I think a lot of creationists would even say that all the cats come from a common ancestor, including a house cat and a lion. And I can talk about how that works. It's not through mutation. And when it is through mutation, it's usually through mutation destroying things instead of creating. But I don't want to get off topic from, from fossils here. Um, another interesting, very interesting thing we see in fossils is sometimes you see two fossil species or even living species that look extremely similar to each other. But according to evolution, they're not supposed to be related at all. Uh, John, according to evolutionary theory, are um, which is more closely related, a dog and a fox? Or a dog and a marsupial. I don't remember offhand. I mean, they're not, it's to, not a, it's they're, not a trick question. Dogs and foxes are. Go ahead. Well, yeah, well, yes, but they're trying to claim also, as far as DNA is concerned, that we share a majority of our DNA with a banana. Well, that's how you. That depends on how you measure the DNA. I mean, you got that four is true. Of, yes, you got four letters of DNA. If you're just looking at individual letters, we're always going to be at least twenty five percent similar to something. But then if you're looking at longer sequences of DNA, then. Oh, I agree with you, but they're always they're always trying to put that forth, you know. But yes, according. Yeah, yeah. Dogs would be closer to foxes. Yes. Yeah. So have you ever heard of a thylacine or a marsupial wolf? I wish we had pictures here because the, the pictures are very stunning. No. Basically, there is a marsupial version of a wolf and it looks a lot like a dog. It went extinct. Um, probably. 50 years ago, 70 years ago, I don't remember. Is that, is that the one with the stripes on it? They're trying yes, to that's, the one, but that's, that's the one. That's it. Oh, gotcha. So under evolutionary theory, um, you know, a dog or a wolf is going to be more closely related to a bat or a whale or a giraffe or a human because these are placental mammals with placenta when they give birth. It's The wolf's going to be more related to all those things than it is related to the marsupial wolf. But if you just take just their bones and you compare them, they look remarkably similar. Like the thylacine, which is the marsupial wolf, I think it has an extra set of molars. It's got a hole in the bone on top of the mouth, if I recall, and there's just a few other small differences. But they'll even throw this in in the paleontology quiz in colleges just to trip trip up the, the students for identifying the bones because they look so similar. Uh you also have uh, aardvarks, anteaters, and pangolins that look very similar, but these are different orders of mammals. The order is like the biggest group within mammals. Uh, like primates is an order of mammals. So the idea is that this, in some 
case is the signal overpower the noise overpowers the signal where things that aren't supposed to be related at all actually look very similar when you look at the bones. But then if you're looking at Tiktaalik, you know, that little amphibian fishy guy who is supposed to uh, be the ancestor of all land animals, and you look at some of the other fishopods they find in similar fossil layers, and just look at their hand joints, you know, these bones are pretty different because we're supposed to be evolving from a fin to a foot so that they can walk on land. And if you just compare the fossils of these guys, you know, the evolutionists will come forward and say, look, look, these fossils are so similar. It shows uh, amphibians or fish evolving into amphibians. But they're much less similar than things that aren't supposed to be related at all. That's the point I'm making. All right, I, I'm monologuing here. I feel like a villain. I don't. Let no, 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 no. I love it. You're, okay. you're, you're blowing my mind. I mean, right. I, I mean, I... I, I, this is interesting because we need to have more pushback against people who push forth evolutionary theory uh, as being the only uh, way um, uh, that that human beings came into existence. Um, and you know, we did talk about it. You know, of course, from a scriptural theological perspective, but also from a scientific uh, perspective. I think it's both to combine uh, both of those. Uh, so that we can uh, proselytize uh, to atheists or secular humanists within scientific professions, um, you know, which is something that I believe that you were able to do, Eric, as you know, God allowed me, at least I hope so. I don't want to put any words in God's mouth to learn about Gnosticism and New Ageism so that I myself uh, can, uh, pro, you know, proselytize to uh Spread the gospel as we're commanded to the Great Commission to those who are New Agers and those who, who are Gnostics or even those who kind of uh, combine technology and transhumanists like Barbara Marks Hubbard or the Institute of Noetic Sciences through kind of like the capitalistic interpretation of quantum mechanics into kind of like technomancy, uh, which we're seeing more and more of in today's modern world. Um, and so, you know, for you to be able to you know, talk about, you know, why you are a creationist, why you are, even a step above that, because there are some quote-unquote theist creationists, but you are, a, you know, a Christian creationist that you believe yeah. in, in the Holy Bible as being the inspired word of God, um, and that that you that you are able uh, to, to prove it, um, you know, that that's that's very important. And you paint a good picture, man. Like, the, the way that you explain it, it, it's great. Like, I think you, you paint a good picture of all of this stuff. And before you... From- that comes from years of explaining it poorly, but until I finally got good at it. <laughs> hey, you had all this time, man, all this time to practice. That's good. We all need that. But before you go, I was wondering, could you touch on the the Eve? I, I don't even remember the big word that you were using. My, mitochondrial Eve. So the uh, mitochondria, the yeah. So, you know, humans have organs like hearts and lungs and kidneys and everything else. Uh, and all those organs are made of tissues. Tissues are made of cells. And then cells also have their own quote, organs inside of them called organelles. Uh, The mitochondria is one of those organelles. That's where we get the word mitochondrial from. And almost all of our DNA, three billion letters of our DNA, is inside the nucleus of the cell. That's the middle part. But then 16,000 letters of our DNA are inside a different organelle called the mitochondria. And uh, we have multiple mitochondria in each cell. And our mitochondria but, produce energy for the cell with the currency of energy is known as adenosine triphosphate through the citric acid cycle or the Krebs cycle. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and, and John, chill out. I'm sorry, but I wrote a whole book on this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's if one you... of its it's one of its main functions for the bodies to provide energy from for the cell, among other things. Yeah. So um, the the tag the tagline the trademarked tagline quote trademark tagline is the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. You hear that over and over again in biology. So um, what's interesting about the mitochondrial DNA, like, you know, most of the DNA that is in the nucleus, we get some from mom, we get some from dad. It gets all mixed around. And if you know how fast mutations happen, you try to measure, well, we've got this many mutations. It would have taken this many years to get that many mutations. It gets complicated because the DNA gets mixed up because you get some from mom, some from dad. Uh the mitochondria is usually not that way. Usually you get all of your mitochondria just from mom. She got all of it from her grandmother. Her grandmother got it from her grandmother, so on and so forth. So it's what we can use is what you would call a molecular clock. The idea is, like I said, you look at how fast mutations happen in DNA. It's a random process, so it's not super precise. And you just count, um, you know, you look at, all the people alive on Earth, and you count how many differences there are between all their um, mitochondrial DNA. I don't have that number in front of me right now. I wasn't prepared to talk about this point. And you measure how fast uh, mitochondrial DNA mutates. You can just count back in time. Well, it would have taken this many years to get this much variation among everyone's mitochondrial DNA. You go back in time, and you can find, oh, this many years ago, all of us share the same great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So when they started doing this, they did it a rather funny way. They uh, looked at mitochondrial DNA in chimpanzees, and they looked at mitochondrial DNA in humans, and they're like, oh, we've got these fossils that radiometrically date to 6 million years ago or 5 million years ago or whatever. Actually, they didn't. have, But they had some very fragmentary stuff, and they're like, well... We think that they evolved from a common ancestor this many years ago. They counted the differences between humans and chimps in their mitochondrial DNA, and they said, well, it would have taken six million years to get this much difference between human and chimp mitochondrial DNA. And they came up with a rate for how fast the mitochondrial mutates. Now, this is flawed. I'm going to get to that. And then they looked at all the differences in humans, and they said, well, if this rate we got from chimps is correct, comparing chimps and humans, assuming humans and chimps evolved from a common ancestor, then it would have taken around 200 million years to get all of the differences in human mitochondrial DNA. And that was all fine and good among the evolutionists until the late 1990s, when instead they started measuring the rate that mitochondrial DNA changes in humans, where you know the family trees, and they got a rate that was dozens of times faster than what they were prepared for. And there's even um, a famous line from a paper in 1999. I think it was 99 or 2000. Ann Gibbons was the author, but I don't have it in front of me. And she said, well, if we switch to this new clock, that means mitochondrial Eve only lived 6,000 years ago, and nobody knows that's the case. Well, nobody indeed, huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So... Nathaniel Jensen, who um, works for Answers in Genesis, he's done a lot of research on this in the past 10 years. And I don't want to say too much because I'm not up to date. I haven't read his books and I haven't read his papers. 
But where the evolutionists have gone with this is they will say, okay, yes, this new fast rate is the correct rate, but maybe natural selection is very strong. And over time, it removes, you know, 97, 98% of all mutations of the mitochondrial DNA. Someone that has those mutations, after several generations, they just die off and it stays preserved that way. But, I mean, there, there's some population genetics problems with that. Um, I don't think it works out very well. Um, like I said, I'm not completely up to date with that. There's also uh, creationists who have done this with the Y chromosome. I think Rob Carter, who works for Creation Ministries International, uh, that's uh, creation.com. It's my favorite uh, creation ministry. I think he's some, done some work with this with the Y chromosome, you know, the chromosome that makes males males, because it also does not recombine with DNA from um, – some of it does not recombine. Maybe all of it. I don't remember. And he, I think he's gotten a similar rate for where the last ancestor of all living humans, living men, would have also been around 6,000 years ago, according to that clock. Now, biblically, it would be Noah would be the last grandparent of everyone living today, and he would be biblically around 4,300 years ago, 4,400 years ago. So, like I said, it's not a precise clock, but it kind of lines up. It gets a little complicated if you talk about Neanderthals. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I think Neanderthals are an extinct race of human beings. I think they got off, I think they are descended from people who got off Noah's Ark. But if you look at their DNA from fossils, it's a little bit more different. So if you throw that in, you're still a few thousand years back. There's some debate saying maybe the Neanderthals had their DNA mutate a lot faster. I think there's been some genetic studies showing that Neanderthals had more broken genes than we do, suggesting they mutated faster, and that's why they have more differences. So it's not it's not cut and dry, but the data is much, much closer to the creationist ballpark than it is the evolutionary ballpark. I mean, if you go with the old Earth ages, then, you know, the people in Australia, the Aborigines, they would have split off from the rest of humans like, what, 60,000 years ago? Uh, and, you know, Native Americans 20 or 30,000 years ago. Um, but, you know, the DNA from the mitochondrial and the white chromosome DNA, it's much closer to the idea that, hey, we all split off just several thousand years ago, not tens and tens of thousands of years ago. But like I said, I mean, I haven't I'm not up to date on the latest research on this, so I don't want to put this in the same category as the other things I've been talking about. Well, one thing I want to point out is like this is stuff that you're not going to learn in school. Like you need to get no, into absolutely, like, the, no, absolutely not. The peer-reviewed studies, you know, that, that they they keep. You know, I, I swear, dude, I'm 29, and when I was in high school, they still taught. I think what's his name, Huxley, the disciple. Oh yes, the the embryos, yeah, the embryos that we had that we had gills. Like they still yeah, have yeah, that yeah. In textbooks. Mm-hmm. Was it That's Huxley? Wild. I don't think it was Heckel. Heckel. Ernest Heckel. Okay. Yeah. Huxley was a friend of Darwin. Heckel, I think, I don't remember if he was the same time or later. Yeah, and I mean, it's been shown that his diagrams, I mean, we do have little flaps on the side of our necks, and I'm not, I don't know that much developmental biology, but, you know, they're not gills. They're not on their way to evolve into something that lets us breathe underwater. Um, yeah, exactly. And so we, ha- we have those while we're in the womb. Yeah. Um. And so my guess is it's it's likely for an amniotic fluid um, right. either to be able to survive an amniotic fluid 
um, or some sort of enough fluid recirculation. Um, but obviously we don't have them as adults. <laughs> no, no, no. So it's, it, it's a picture too, dude. It's literally like fish gills. Yeah, and the argument that they were making at that time was that organisms, when you're in the womb developing, you go through the same process that, you know, uh, animals went through in the last hundreds of millions of years of evolution. You know, you start out as a fish, something a little bit like a fish, then you turn into something like an amphibian and so on and so forth. And then you grow hair and you lose it. And uh, that was the argument. But I see I don't see that being promoted as much by evolutionists today as what it used to be. Right, especially when you get a higher up in academia. But I just, I just thought it was, you know, they're yeah. teaching teaching that while you're in high school, you know. And and yeah. so many people believe it because even they don't – the textbook doesn't actually explain how it all works. It It is mm-hmm. a theory. It's called a theory in, in, in the textbooks. And But people believe it as as truth because they're they're pushing it as truth and not a theory. Yeah. I don't want to get too caught up on definitions, though. You know, we talk about evolution versus adaptation. Um, gravity is also a theory. So – and – you know, the odds are against this because the surveys I've seen show that something like 95 to 97 percent of scientists accept evolutionary theory. But, you know, it's funny if you get down in deep into the literature, you, you you find serious problems. And a lot of these guys, as far as I can tell, they're honest and they think these are just problems in their own subset, their own field. And all the other fields are fine. You know, I see geneticists appeal to the fossil record to show that evolution happened. And I see paleontologists appeal to genetics. Or health researchers, re, re, you know, uh, uh, appealing towards modern uh, medical thought and, and textbooks. A lot of them were Rockefeller funded through the Flexner Report, best of the discussion. But, right. you know, they, you know they, they mean well, but then you, you also see serious discrepancies yeah. within their literature of medical studies. Uh, and you also see arguments arise from that, and some people actually break away and go, wait a minute, this isn't right. Yeah, and if you come, especially if you're coming from another field, like my field is computer science. My degree is in computer science, and there's almost no controversies in my field that I can think of, and if they are, then they're nothing that you would care about. And, you know, you go to Wikipedia, you read some article on computer science. I have a degree in computer science. I can't find any problems with it. There's no agenda that I see in any of this, and if I take that perspective and I go to a field like evolution and biology and I implicitly trust them, then I'm never going to know the truth. But all scientific fields are not equal. Some of them are ridiculous and some of them work out just fine. It's weird. Very true. Very true. I think it goes back to the God question. You know, I mean, whether, um, you know, my sorting algorithm runs at this speed or that speed has very little effect on my life and my moral decisions. But whether I'm created by God or evolved with no God involved, that has a huge impact of, you know, on what I can and can't do morally, sexually, everything else. And I think so many people, they just can't separate that. And what they want to be true has to be true. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So. Okay. Um, Are we wrapping up now? How long do you guys want to go? I think. I don't have any other questions. Thank you, Eric, for definitely for coming on and uh, uh, one explaining. Last thing. Yes, go ahead. One last thing. I want a soapbox moment here for just a second. Go for if it. If you don't mind, just two minutes. 
I want to strongly, strongly, strongly encourage Christians, creationists, um, learn biology, learn science, take the secular classes, learn about as much about it as you possibly can. Because right now, the creation movement is suffering terribly from a lack of scientific thinkers. There, we are not suffering from a lack of enthusiasm. There are a lot of people that go into the comment section of whatever social media site, and they are the most enthusiastic people you can get. But they make very basic mistakes in biology. Then, you know, someone else comes along. They know the biology. Look at all the mistakes this guy is making. I, there is nothing behind this. He's just never studied. He doesn't know anything. We need thinkers. We need serious thinkers. Um, don't be afraid of taking secular biology classes. Don't be afraid of taking evolutionary biology classes. Um, you might want to not advertise your creation too loudly. I have one friend who was kicked out of her PhD biology program because she was a creationist. So, but don't be afraid of it. Learn all you can. Um, if you want to just get started, I love the website creation.com. There is the excellent documentary, Is Genesis History? The same team that put that together put a lot of free videos on YouTube as part of a series called Beyond Is Genesis History? Um, if you want to learn the basics of geology and flood, which we didn't have time to get to on this show, there is a very excellent book by uh, Rob Carter and Michael Ord called uh, Biblical Geology 101. Um, and I think that's the end of my soapbox. We'll probably well, have you. We'll probably have you back on our, uh, to to discuss, it'd be interesting to discuss uh, the biblical uh, flood narrative and as well as uh, proof for uh, Noah's Ark uh, to be historical. Um, I think you'd find that interesting, wouldn't you, Jeremy? Absolutely, absolutely. I'll have to do a little more reading on that one first. Sounds good. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. Um, oh, sure, it's fun. Here, uh, yeah, man. Uh, this is what we try to do here on By Their Fruits is edify the body of Christ and this we touch on many different subjects and this is one that's just as important if not more than all the rest so I just really appreciate your knowledge and sharing that with the with me and the audience I learned a lot today oh no problem glad to be here all right god bless guys god bless everybody Thank you for listening to Buy Their Fruits. May the Lord bless the giver, the gift, and the receiver.